Hello, my name's David Runciman, and this is Talking Politics. Today, we have a guide with John Norton, and he is going to be telling us about Facebook, what kind of company it is, and why we should be afraid of it. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. This Christmas, gift subscriptions to the LRB for yourself or somebody else start from just $19.99. Find our best offers and a reading list to accompany today's episode at lrb.co.uk forward slash talking. I imagine most people know the background story to the birth of Facebook. They've probably seen the social network. This guy in Harvard, almost by accident, creates something which very quickly grows. But when it was growing initially and growing very fast, do you have a sense of what Mark Zuckerberg and the people around him thought was the business model? What kind of a business did they think they were building to start with? My hunch is that, like many of the other modern tech firms, the founder in this case didn't really have an idea of what the business model would be. Um, that was certainly true for Google. For example, when they, when they started, they had no idea how in the end it was going to make money. And Zuckerberg was much the same at the beginning, I think. And it was relatively late in its evolution when it was made clear to him, possibly by outside investors like Peter Thiel, that it had to have a revenue stream, and the only revenue stream in businesses comes from advertising. What's interesting, both in the Facebook case and in the case of Google, is that that revelation, so to speak, was unwelcome to the founders. They didn't want to be told, you're basically in the advertising business. They thought they were in the change the world business. Yes, that's true. And in the case of Facebook and Zuckerberg, I think he's actually on record as saying nasty things about advertising. And it's absolutely clear that the Google boys were the same. At the beginning, they didn't want to acknowledge that the only way that this glorious stuff that they had invented could become commercially viable was through the sordid business of advertising. Clearly, Mark Zuckerberg hasn't given up on the change the world business side of what he does. But before we get to that, how then does it work? Facebook is a network now of 2.3 billion people. The revenue stream is advertising. How would you characterize the business operation? Facebook is a data extractive company claiming to be a social network. That's basically the essence of it. It provides free services which many, many people clearly value. And in return, it gets from them the right to mine and to extract all of their online behaviours and to analyse and refine the resulting data in order to enable the company to effectively paint a virtual target on the back of every user at which advertisers can aim. That's what it does. So I've seen you describe this as the users of the product and the advertisers of the consumers of what Facebook does. So can you just explain that? The cliche is not mine. The cliche was, if the service is free, you are the product. Actually, that's not quite right. If the service is free, your data is the product. But what it effectively means is that the users of Facebook's services, and there are an awful lot of them, are not its customers. Its real customers are the advertisers who pay to use the automated targeting engine that Facebook has built. And it's a very good targeting engine. 
Is it the best? Well, I can't say because I'm not an expert on Google's engine, but I have used the Facebook one, and I think it's one of the best pieces of software design I've ever encountered. It's utterly brilliant. If you come as an advertiser, then what you find yourself confronted with is an automated system which helps you in really interesting and efficient ways to identify the kind of customized audiences that you might want to aim your messages at. In that sense, it's a beautiful piece of technical design. It really is. My hunch is that the the Google one is much the same, but I haven't used it, so I don't know. If it is as you describe it, it's also the case that the people who use Facebook, who make the network, value it enormously in many respects. And it's not just an add-on to people's lives. It's an integral part of many people's lives. It's actually, in some ways, part of the infrastructure too. So we've got this odd thing that you've got an advertising business, and I've always thought of advertising as something relatively superficial in the human experience. But it's based on something that's become integral to many people's lived experience. It's how they communicate. It's how they make friends. It's how they genuinely share how do we reconcile these two things? I mean, Facebook isn't just an advertising business. It is also an enormous public service. It is an enormous public service. And I think one of the mistakes that critics of the company make, and I've sometimes made it myself, is to ignore that fact. There's a story that one of our academic colleagues in Cambridge was talking to one of his graduate students who was had been investigating security aspects of Facebook and was coming back with critiques of them. And his supervisor said to him, so are you still on Facebook then? And he said, yes. And the supervisor said, "Um, well, why? Why don't you just delete your account? And the student responded to him by saying something like, look, do you not want me to have any sex life or any social life or anything else? And effectively what he was saying was that the network effect of such a large user network and its ubiquity in the social lives of many people makes it something that you just can't kind of avoid. And that's really significant part of its power, I think. And it's more than that even in some parts of the world where it's not just ubiquitous. It genuinely is a kind of monopoly because it's the way that you access the internet. So there are, this is not true in Europe or North America, but it's particularly true in parts of Asia, where Facebook is the internet. So it's not just, do you want me to have a sex life? Do you want me to have a social life? It's, do you want me to be able to communicate? Because there is no way in without Facebook. That's true. For some parts of the world, Facebook has become the internet. Anybody who gets a smartphone, a cheap Chinese smartphone in a poor part of the world, the one thing they will not be able to do is to afford the data charges for a normal internet use of their device. But Facebook has cunningly, and with a great strategic nous, I think it has arranged it so that in many of these territories, if you use the Facebook app on your newly acquired smartphone, then your data charges are free. So for many of these people, once they get the phone and they know that this phone is connected to the something called the internet, but the only way they can use it is via this thing called Facebook, then for them, Facebook really is the internet. There's nothing else. That's true, for instance, in Myanmar. Um, There are a series of scandals that are bubbling around Facebook, and we'll come on to some of the others too, but one of them relates to the genocide of the Rohingya, or the ethnic cleansing of the Rohingya. If you are the monopoly provider of information in a given country, 
would it be fair to say that they share some responsibility for what happened there? I think they share an enormous amount of responsibility for it. Um, so just tell us what, as it were, how Facebook is implicated in that story. Well, Facebook has an ambition to connect the world, quote, unquote, much as Google has the ambition to organise all the world's information. So you have these grandiose, kind of almost monomaniacal mission statements. Now, in Facebook's case, it meant that every country in the world is potential territory for its, its operations. And as the markets in the industrialised world have become more saturated, I mean, almost everybody in the West has some kind of connection with Facebook. But there are other parts of the world where it's not like that. And so they have been relentlessly expanding. And they move into territories where there's been no experience of people using this technology. There's been, in many cases, they move into territories where there has been repression, where there have been authoritarian regimes, or where there's no experience of democracy, and certainly no experience of public discourse of any kind. And they arrive. And in the case of Myanmar, for example, they provided the free basics service, i.e. the one where if you have a smartphone Facebook is it or WhatsApp is it. I think they had two people on the ground in Myanmar who spoke the language. And then what happened is that there was an explosive use of the of their platform for genocidal kinds of uh, content. And they didn't spot it because they couldn't spot it. Nobody could read it. And as has been the pattern, when the, the abuse explodes, it eventually gets noticed by Western media. And then they go into apology mode and then they go into damage limitation mode and they, they say, we're sorry, we missed this and so on. Meanwhile, a great deal of human suffering and grotesque abuse has happened and it has been enabled by the technology they provided. The comparisons is sometimes made with the Rwandan genocide, which was driven by radio messages. And people might sometimes say, well, it doesn't make sense to blame the radio for the genocide. Why is Facebook any different from the radio? Why is it not just the neutral platform? Why does it bear culpability here? Well, the difference between the Rwandan case and the Myanmar case is that radio is a broadcast medium. In other words, there's a controller of some kind. It's a one-to-many or a few-to-many medium. So there's, there's a definite locus of, of responsibility in those cases. If you own a radio station and it's, it's been used for genocidal purposes, then it's pretty clear about the responsibility for it. In the case of Myanmar, essentially giving technologies like, like Facebook or WhatsApp, which is a Facebook product, to people who have never had any experience of, of discourse, effectively means that each of them can become a broadcaster themselves. That's the difference. So it's the platform that becomes the enabler. Nobody in the right mind would say that Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook executives are genocidal maniacs. The fact that they have created a technology that they've launched it without, in my opinion, due care into these territories means that they have a responsibility, but it's a different kind of responsibility. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Facebook is probably more vulnerable at the moment than it has been at any point in its history. It had some shaky moments in its early days, like all startups do, but since its hegemony, 
It's had a rough few months, partly thanks to your colleague Carol Cadwallader um, and the Cambridge Analytica scandal, the thought that Facebook also maybe is an enabler of the election of Donald Trump and, and Brexit. Just how vulnerable do you think it is? Um, it's a, still a very wealthy, very powerful company. Its share price is down, as we speak, maybe 30% from its high, but it's still higher than it was a year ago. Is it vulnerable? It is vulnerable in some ways, but because of its size and heft in terms of uh, its economic value or its economic valuation and the rest of it, and because of the kind of way it has its services have inserted themselves into the daily lives of an awful lot of people. It's a different proposition than dealing with a, an abusive company like a tobacco company or a drinks company or whatever. Because for one thing, politicians across the world, at least in democracies, will be wary of tackling something that provides free services that many of their constituents value. So that's one bit of it. The second thing is that we still don't have an accurate analytical framework for analysing the kinds of harms that we think flow from this kind of uh, commercial power in such a way that we could do something about it. Um, So they are in principle vulnerable in the long run, but it's going to take a while before any of democratic societies get a grip on it, I think. And in the meantime, there will be a lot of knee-jerk, effectively unreflective, PR-friendly moves by politicians who, who see some level of public anxiety and, and sometimes anger about it. But this is a much bigger problem because this is a very different kind of technology. It's not like Standard Oil. It's not like drug companies. It's different and it needs a much more sophisticated framing before we can see, A, what are the long-term societal harms, let's say, and secondly, how then might we address it? So it's going through a bad patch and it has lots of PR problems. In the last two years in particular, it has responded with staggering ineptitude to this kind of stuff. I mean, for example, in recent times, when the criticism of Facebook started to really amplify to the point where even even brain-dead senators in the United States Congress were paying attention, one of the responses of Sheryl Sandberg, who's the chief operating officer and the second most powerful executive in the company, to the criticism of Facebook was to notice that some of it was coming from George Soros or people who were funded by Soros, and then to launch an old-style tobacco company-type investigation into Soros. I mean, this is just kind of pathetic, but it's also somehow redolent of an older style of corporate competitiveness. And I write for The Observer, as you know, and so we have been on the receiving end of what this company is like when it's attacked or when it's criticised. And it's very hard to tell any difference between it and a tobacco company. Is that partly because it is so young, actually? So, as you say, it's old-style corporate behaviour. This company didn't know what it was until a few years ago. It's accumulated this wealth and this power on a scale, not only that's relatively unprecedented, but also in its speed probably is unprecedented. The only comparable organisations are companies like it, like Google and so on, that they don't know what they're doing because this is happening too fast for them. They're falling back on these old patterns because... They're clueless. Is that possible? I think there's an element of that, but it's it's also due to their very strange corporate governance because the thing that makes some of these tech companies very different is that the founders have retained absolute control. And that's certainly true in this case. Yeah, it is true. And if you could bear it, I'll read you what Facebook's Securities and Exchange filing says about Mark Zuckerberg's power. Can you bear that? Mm. This is not a PR statement. This is a filing 
to the Securities and Exchange Commission in the United States. And this is what it says. Mark Zuckerberg, our founder, chairman and CEO, is able to exercise voting rights with respect to a majority of the voting power of our outstanding capital stock and therefore has the ability to control the outcome of matters submitted to our stockholders for approval, including the election of directors and any merger, consolidation or sale of all or substantially all of our assets. This concentrated control could delay, defer or prevent a change of control, merger, consolidation or sale of all or substantially all of our assets that our other stockholders support, or conversely, this concentrated control could result in the consummation of such a transaction that our other stockholders do not support. I.e. he can do what he likes. He can do whatever he likes. He has absolute control over that company. Absolute control. And that's unusual. Now, why is that important? It's important because this particular individual started life and until quite recently appeared to remain committed to a strange kind of view about humanity and about community and about generally the way human cultures work. He appeared to believe that the world will be a better place when everybody's on Facebook. And in a normal business, a chief executive who held such flat earth ideas about society would be tempered by <laughs> other directors who had some kind of control. But in this case, they don't. So Facebook has been, at least up to now, has been a corporate extension of its founder's personality. That's what makes it very different from most of the corporations we've been used to dealing with. Is there any possibility that, that could change? People have commented in recent weeks that as the crisis around Facebook gets closer and closer to the centre... Zuckerberg's own position must at some point become vulnerable. But as you describe it, it's invulnerable. It's invulnerable. Charles Sandberg could go, everyone could go, and he'll be left. There is no way of getting rid of Mark Zuckerberg except shooting him. So there is no Facebook without Zuckerberg? In my opinion, no. So that is different, isn't it? From... That's very different from the normal, normal idea of corporate power. But is it not the case that pressures could... Obviously, he could decide to step down. He could decide he's had enough. But that there are real pressures that can be applied to any company. There are its employees. And the word is that there's been a quite dramatic fall in morale and the ability to recruit among Facebook employees. That actually people quite recently have started saying they're not sure they want to work there anymore. There are the other shareholders. As you say, he's still the majority shareholder. There are the users who are the product, but so on. There are the consumers, the advertisers. There is government. There are lots of people who could put pressure on Zuckerberg, do none of them have real leverage over him? It's very difficult to see where the critical level of dissent would come from. In other words, dissent that would make a, d a difference. I've said for many years that if a million people, a million Facebook users decided that for a month they wouldn't use it, then that would have a dramatic impact. Just a million? Just a million would do it. Out of 2.3 billion? Yes. Why would that have such a dramatic impact? Especially if they were in the West, because it would change the narrative. The narrative of these companies and their valuation is always that they will continue to grow, that there's always more to be got from it, that the numbers will increase, that the revenues will increase. That the hours that people spend on the network yeah. will increase. Yeah. So when you've got every human on the planet, then you need to colonise 24 hours a day and sleep will be the thing. That's that right, yeah. So you have to... You, you have to uh, monopolise attention as much as you can. There's a problem with that, of course, because there's only 24 hours in the day and some people have to sleep 
and even a few people have to work. So you can't be on Facebook 24 hours a day unless you're working for Facebook. So in the end, there has to be a self-limiting boundary, I think, on the amount of data they can extract. And that we've some distance to go before we get there. And, you, for example, the current craze for having home devices like Alexa or the products from Google and others is an attempt to, to boost the amount of data extraction you can get because you get your device into people's homes and so on. That can go on for a long time, but ultimately it's self-limiting and it'll take a long time before we get to that, I think. So in the meantime, what could change? Well, one thing could be a mass revolt by a significant proportion of people, simply as a gesture of some kind. If it changed the narrative, then it would cause investors to panic a bit because they had bought into a story which is this is going to be one of the biggest things since well, since the invention of capitalism. And in those cases, a different kind of dynamic holds. But even in those circumstances, because of Zuckerberg's absolute control over the company, it's hard to see what would change it. The only thing I can think of is that in the end, he got to the point where he felt, I've had enough. And who knows? He's a mystery in that sense. It is also true, and it's not just true of Facebook, some of those other large semi-monopoly abusive corporations that you talked about had lots of employees. And one of the dynamics of this industry is that pressure from employees, I've said that I read that there are surveys saying that people who work for Facebook are increasingly embarrassed and unhappy, but there just aren't many of them. Isn't that part of the issue here too? It's not, it's not an employee culture. It's not. But on the other hand, they are all critically dependent on a certain class of very talented geeks. And those... So for the few jobs they have, they do need the right people for those jobs. They do jobs. need the right people. And for a, for a time, until quite recently, I would have said that they were on a, an upward spiral in, in this regard. And working in this university and in others, one can see that, especially in, in the computer science and engineering and mathematics, in some cases, parts of those universities, that the brightest graduate students, their dream was they'd get a job in one of these companies. Because, first of all, the work was terrifically interesting. Secondly, the pay was terrific. And thirdly, there was the kind of social prestige you got from working for an elite company. I have this very funny interaction sometimes with parents who say to me with a very kind of complacent look, very pleased, proud look that one of their kids has got a job in Google or Facebook. And then I say, because I'm very rude and unpleasant person, would you be as pleased if they got a job in a tobacco company? And then they look at you bemused and they don't know. Well, that's beginning to work because some of the people, geeks who work for these uh, corporations are beginning to have qualms. And because they're easy to employ, you know, they can walk out and they have a job tomorrow. That's a strategic risk that would need to be managed. And if I were running these companies, I'd be very worried about that. Google has already had that problem. For example, Google employees have decided they don't really want the company to work for the Pentagon. And that matters. I should say you use geek as a term of affection because that's how you would describe yourself. I'm very fond of geeks, yeah. yeah. Is there a possibility here that what Jeff Bezos described recently, which is that people shouldn't get overexcited about Amazon's extraordinary power because it's just a corporation and corporations come and go. And he said in 30 years there may not be an Amazon. This is an unbelievably competitive market. It might look like we've won, but something always comes along. So Facebook's strategy is also to buy up its competitors, its rivals. But again, you can't keep doing that forever either, or maybe you can. Is there the possibility, and presumably this is the thing that if there is anything that keeps Zuckerberg awake at night, it's that someone will just come along and steal his lunch, that 
a rival will just do it better. Well, for a long time, the, the myth was, and it was a comforting myth in terms of PR for the founders of these companies, which was to say that, look, I know we're a monopoly. I know we're very successful. I know we're insanely profitable. But actually, somewhere in a garage, there are two guys who are going to do to us what we did to the previous incumbents, right? And that, that was true a while back. But it ain't true now. And the reason it isn't true is because the, the two guys in the garage, and they would probably be guys because geeks generally tend to be male still, unfortunately, they would have to have not just a, a good idea and technical analysis and great programming skills and so on. They'd also have to have perhaps 100 large server farms located across the world. They'd have to have 15 years exabytes of user data to use for machine learning and so on. So the barrier to entry for insurgents has become very high. And that's a change in this industry. For example, in 1998, when Google started, two guys had a really good idea for how to rank web pages and they built the stuff to do it and then they <laughs> covertly used Stanford's network in order to test it out. So they basically indexed the whole of the web as it then was and showed that by having a page rank algorithm which gave you better search results, then you could basically take everything else out and they did. But that was then. And in the intervening period, we've had these large corporations grow, they build huge infrastructures and those infrastructures cost real money. And so they, they become a barrier to entry for insurgents. But when it, say Instagram came along, an idea that came from relatively nowhere and very quickly turned out to be a genius idea, and then Facebook bought it. Yes. And Zuckerberg paid, I think, a billion for it, and it's probably the greatest deal in business history. The law could have said, you're not allowed to buy Instagram. You can't buy everything. So Instagram comes along, and it is a, a potentially a, a rival. Is it not possible that states and governments should simply prevent Facebook from buying up its rivals. It is absolutely the case. And if, if they had been traditional companies in traditional industries, they would not have been allowed to do it. But what happened is that essentially governments and regulators for the best part of 15 years were asleep at the wheel. And to some extent, they bought the notion that somehow the digital was different. Um, Facebook ought never to have been allowed to buy Instagram. And in well, can't we take it away from them then? Well, I say we. Well, it's an American company, so you know the United the States. Next Democratic happen. president of the United States, Elizabeth Warren, might take it off them. Yes, but it, in, a, in a strange way, Instagram was a great, obviously, a very astute purchase. But WhatsApp was also a very smart purchase, and they, that ought not to have happened. Governments and regulators ought to have been looking and saying, "No, no, 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 come on." Part of the difficulty was that our kind of perception of what the business was was not fit for purpose at the time. This, all of this stuff is about data. Society failed to understand that this is not about social networking. It is not about photographs. It is not about uh, encrypted end-to-end -end communications between individuals. This is all about data, all about data. This industry is a data industry, which has different manifestations in terms of search and in terms of networking and in terms of pictures and so on. And the failure... I think, was to perceive that when Facebook buys Instagram, it's simply swallowing up another source of data. And in those circumstances, or to, just as when two media companies, two television companies, start to uh, think about a merger, our society says, OK, well, this is all about the use of spectrum. We understand that. And therefore, we, you know, there's a legitimate public interest. But in fact, what was happening is that this was all about data and nobody had thought about it.
One last question, totally unfair, but Facebook is barely, not even, I think, 15 years old. Can you imagine what it will look like in 15 years' time? My hunch is that it won't be around. Very few corporations have have infinite life. On the other hand, big corporations have a longer lifespan than the average human span. The, although the number of corporations that are more than 100 years old in their unchanged form is quite small. There are a number of them. And one of these data companies will survive. Links, as always, are at tppodcast underscore. The next guide is going to be with Ella McPherson, co-director of the Centre for Governance and Human Rights, and she'll be talking about what human rights mean in the digital age. My name's David Runciman, and we've been talking politics. Can you imagine what it will look like in 15 years' time? My hunch is that it won't be around. Because global warming will have taken care of it. Okay, that one also won't go out on Christmas Day then. (laughs) Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.